Well, it is good for us to reflect upon the Lord's love and to sing to him and praise him for who he is and what he's done. I know that uh, over the last week, there has been an opportunity for friends and family members to, uh, to express love to each other. I hope that, uh, that you had an enjoyable Valentine's Day on, on Friday. I know that uh, it can be said that a, a picture is worth a thousand words. I, I, I saw this picture at one time, and um, I don't know exactly what that means. Um, there's got to be a story behind it, though, right? When you see a bouquet of balloons coming out of a trash can, there's got to be a story. And I think I came across who owned those balloons. Look at the next picture. I think maybe, I think maybe this guy is the one who gave the balloons, and that's where they ended up after. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just guessing. I'm just guessing. Well, I invite you to Ruth chapter 3, and we're going to see a love that is greater than any love that this world could ever offer. Because we know that, that in this world, we see glimpses of love that at times are not as complete. They're not as, uh, as, uh, as full as what God has given to each of us. And so in chapter three of Ruth, we, uh, we arrive at a turning point in the story. And in the passage that we're gonna be reading today, we're gonna see that there is tension, that there is drama, there is suspense, but behind it all, we will see the depth of the love of God for you. And it's a redeeming love. There is a redeemer in the book of Ruth, pictures for us this redeeming love that is offered in Jesus Christ, a love that is beyond the love of this world. And I would just begin today by saying that there may be some people with us today that need to be reminded of God's love. You might need to be reminded of, 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 of how he cares for you, how he is committed to you through the ups and the downs, the seasons of life, to know that his love never fails. It never changes. And there could possibly be some with us today who need to open their hearts to the love of God, to receive a love that, that he offers and maybe today that's going to be the takeaway for you as we go through the third chapter in the book of Ruth. Just as a quick recap, we, uh, we started the book of Ruth in chapter 1. We saw a family, husband and wife, Elimelech and Naomi. Uh, they and their two sons lived in Bethlehem, a familiar little town, right? And uh, the town was experiencing a famine, and they decided to leave not just to leave Israel, but to leave uh, Bethlehem, but to leave Israel as well. They went to a different country, the country of Moab. They left the promised land, and they went to a land that we noted was a land of compromise, not a land where people were following after the Lord, but instead they were pursuing idolatry. They were, they were known to be uh, very immoral, and they were also enemies of Israel. And so a very strange decision for this family to go into the land of Moab. But while they were there, Naomi's husband, Elimelech, dies. And she is left there with two sons and two daughters-in-law that, uh, that, that uh, were from Moab. And 
both of her sons also died. And so just in those first three verses of the book, there's a lot of tragedy that unfolds. And so then we saw that Naomi was there with her two daughters-in-law. She's ready to come back to Bethlehem. She hears that there's food there again. One daughter-in-law decides to stay in Moab, but the other daughter-in-law, Ruth, what did she decide to do? She said to Naomi, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. I am going with you. And so this uh, young lady makes the journey with Naomi. They come in, back into Bethlehem. People recognize Naomi, and uh, she tells them that, 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 that uh, she is bitter. She says that she left Bethlehem full and that she has come back empty. Remember that? And she even said, the hand of God has been against me. I mean, she comes back in a very bitter, desperate situation, and she says she's empty while her daughter-in-law is standing right next to her. We pick back up uh, in, in, uh, in, ver- in chapter 2, and we, we see that, that God was still with Naomi. We had noted that in, in chapter 1, as much of a time of, of despair that it was, a season of broken dreams and grief and bitterness, we said that God had not forgotten her, and that at times it seems that God can be far from us, but in those situations, it could be that he's laying the foundation for a great display of his faithfulness, that he is not far away and has not forgotten. And in chapter 2, that scene, because they arrive in Bethlehem at the time of harvest, and, and because of the provision of God's word for those who are in need, uh, they were able, specifically Ruth was able to go to a field of those who were harvesting. And there was provision there for her. And uh, she uh, just happened, as it says in the text, to go to the field of a man named Boaz. And at the time, she didn't know who he was, uh, but he was being very generous to her. He goes back and she goes back to tell Naomi, I've been working in the field of Boaz. And Naomi knows that name. Boaz is an extended relative of her deceased husband. And this is significant because he is, is, is... qualified to be for them what was known at the time as a kinsman redeemer, one who could step in and give assistance to a a distant family member in need. It could mean paying off debt. It could mean helping reacquire land that had been lost, or it could even mean marriage to one who had been widowed. And so he qualified for all of this, and it begins, the story for them begins to turn in a positive direction. Now we turn to chapter 3, and we, uh, we pick back up the, in, uh, in verse 1, where we left off last week, and we will see the story continue to unfold, particularly with, uh, uh, with Ruth and with Boaz. Verse 1, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, Shouldn't I find rest for you so that you will be taken care of? Now, right there is the question of the chapter. This is the theme of the chapter. You have a mother-in-law concerned for her daughter-in-law. And she's thinking, how can I, how can I make sure that you are cared for? Um, the, the phrase there, shouldn't I find rest for you? If you're reading in the New American Standard Bible, the word rest isn't used. It's the word security. And so that, that's probably a, 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 a more uh, 
uh, specific and accurate way of thinking about that word. Remember, Ruth is not an Israelite. She's a Moabite. Her mother-in-law, Naomi, is worried. What will happen to you after I'm gone? You need to have security. You need to have provision. Or as it says in this verse, this type of rest, this assurance that things are going to be okay. Once a plan for security is established, there would be no more uncertainty about her future. The past would be behind her. All the burdens from Moab, all the heartache of the past. Naomi wants Ruth to have security in the days ahead. So that's really the theme of what is being pursued in chapter 3. Verse 2, now isn't Boaz our relative? Haven't you been working with his female servants? This evening, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. So here's where the mother-in-law, Naomi, is beginning to uh, conceive of a plan to put uh, Ruth in front of Boaz once again. And she had seen him in the field. They'd had a dialogue, which has already been recorded in chapter 2. But she wants to, Ruth wants to make, Naomi wants to make sure that Ruth has time to, to, uh, to approach him again. And she comes up with this idea that, that she would meet him at the threshing floor. So at the end of the harvest, what would happen is they, they, would, they would have a time where they would uh, winnow the, the barley, the, the kernel of the, of the, uh, of the grain to be separated from the, sh- the, the chaff. And the way to do that was by using a pitchfork, usually in an elevated place, maybe a hillside where a breeze would be coming through. And with the pitchfork, put the grain up in the air over and over again. And the, the, the fine material of the chaff would be caught up in the wind and the heavier grain would fall to the threshing floor. And that would probably be something made out of stone where it could then be collected and the grain uh, uh, could be uh, picked up apart from the chaff that is there with, uh, with the grain. And so she has this idea. She knows this is about to happen, that the barley is going to be winnowed that night. And so she uh, says, this may be the opportunity. You can go and find him there. We know where he'll be. And it may be a time when, when, uh, when you can talk to him one-on-one. I'm going to interject one more thought here. If you, if you think about it, chapter 2 was all about God's providence. We, we began the message thinking about the meaning of the word providence and, and how God was demonstrating his providential care through the timing of all these sequence of events in chapter 2, as well as the, the people that were involved. And we were encouraged to think about the providence of God in our own lives. But providence of God sometimes calls for action doesn't necessarily mean that we're inactive in in thinking about his providence because we see in chapter 3, even under God's providential hand, there is a call to action. But we're also going to see in chapter 3 that there's a time of waiting. And so sometimes uh, both of these are needed, even though we do recognize and understand that we have a God of providence. Let's keep reading. Naomi says in verse 3 to Ruth, wash Put on perfumed oil and wear your best clothes. Does this sound like someone ready to go work on the threshing floor? I think we see what's happening here, don't we? Go down to the threshing floor, but don't let the man know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. Now, this is an interesting part of the, of the, of the, the account because clearly Ruth is, is, is getting ready to meet him. 
She wants to present herself to him. And uh, this idea of, 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 of putting on your best clothes and, and uh, putting on perfumed oil may be more than what we are thinking of in our minds. One of the commentators that I was studying this week noted that in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 20, King David does something very similar. Do you remember when he was coming out of a, a season of grief and heartache? over the loss of a child? And do you remember the turning point for him when his servants looked at him and he had, he had washed his face and he had put on a, a different set of clothes and, and, and he was communicating to them that he, was, that he had grieved, legitimately and authentically grieved, and yet this was a turning point where he was moving forward. And so the commentator said, it could be that something like this was also being communicated. Here we have a, a lady who had been widowed, who had been grieving. And maybe this also is a way for her to communicate that as much heartache and pain that she had been through, that, uh, that all of that being genuine, that she is still uh, realizing that there is a future ahead and that she is now ready to move forward and that it could even be a time where she would be once again eligible for marriage. We know that life has its seasons and some are very, very difficult. And I wouldn't say that all of us go through the same level of difficulty. We know that that's not the case. Some have suffered in, in greater ways than others, so we, we are sensitive to that. But we also know that 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 these seasons are not meant to paralyze us forever, but at the right time to continue moving forward with, God, with what God has planned. And this is indeed the case for Ruth. Let's keep reading. Verse 4, when he lies down, notice the place where he's lying. Go in and, un go in and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will explain to you what you should do. And you're probably thinking, what is Naomi telling Ruth to do? This seems really bizarre, doesn't it? So, uh, a Moabite worker in the field uh, approaching the Israelite owner of the field in such a manner would have certainly been strange. But Ruth responds, verse 5, Ruth said to her, I will do everything you say. She went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law had charged her to do. Verse 7, after Boaz ate, drank, and was in good spirits, he went to lie down at the end of the pile of barley. And she came secretly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. At midnight, Boaz was startled, turned over, and there lying at his feet was a woman. So he asked, who are you? I am Ruth, your servant, she replied. Take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer. Now, again, I know that this is a, a strange passage. It's probably something that we would not or have not ever recommended to someone else in terms of an approach, right? Uh, certainly some imagery here that is meant to communicate that Ruth is indeed pursuing Boaz. But I want to be clear, the narrator does not tell us anything here that calls in to question the morality of, of Ruth, or Boaz, or anything along those lines. In verse 9, Ruth makes it clear that she's wanting to become the wife of Boaz. You see the statement that she makes about him being a family redeemer, and she asks him to take her under his wing, a metaphor that speaks of provision and care. But again, don't miss this. 
you have a Moabite that is basically proposing to, to an Israelite, right? And you, you have a Moabite woman proposing to an Israelite man, thinking about the, the cultural implications of that society. Beyond that, you have a, a worker in the field that's proposing to who? The, the owner of the field, right? Uh, and then you have a younger person proposing to an older person. Re- really, all of the rules here are being violated, right? Every single one of them. Question is, how's Boaz going to respond? You think this might make him angry? Do you think he might be at least a little bit frustrated with the way all of this is unfolding? Maybe surprised? How is he going to respond? Is he going to tell her that this isn't proper? Look at verse 10. Then he said, may the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown more kindness now than before. Because you have not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. Now, don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you say. Since all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Now, it's clear from the very first words out of his mouth that he is going to respond favorably to Ruth. He, he is wanting her to be blessed by God, very similar to, way that, to the way in which he spoke to his workers in the field, if you remember, when he approached them in chapter, chapter 2 and, and, and spoke words of blessing to them. So again, we're learning a lot about Boaz and the way that he speaks and the way that he responds to others. He is speaking to her now about her kindness and he, he's saying, you are expressing kindness to me. You're not pursuing other men, not younger men, but instead you've pursued me. So it seems as if Boaz is a little surprised by the way this is going. But she's not just seen as kind. If you look at the end of verse 11, it's an important, uh, important phrase there. It says, all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. And if you think about that phrase, it's the exact same wording that is used in Proverbs 31, verse 10. Who can find a wife of noble character? She is far more precious than jewels. And so here we have a connection, don't we? Connection in God's word of, 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 of Boaz recognizing her character. But also, who else has noticed her character? People in town, right? And think about where she's from. She's from Moab. They were not known as being people of character. And even the country of Israel right now is living in the time of the judges, which is known as being a time in which people were doing whatever was right in their own eyes. And so, so Ruth really stands out from the crowd. And uh, in terms of character, the people notice that. Boaz has noticed that. And so when she expresses an interest in him, that's what he references, her character. If you're at all familiar with Proverbs chapter 31, or if you take the time to read it later, that, that last half of it in particular, you're going to see a lot of parallels between the Proverbs 31 woman and the person of Ruth. In fact, she is a hard worker. We saw that in chapter 2. 
We know that she is providing not only for herself, but for her family, which obviously in this case right now, her, her only family is Naomi. But she came back last time we were reading in chapter 2 with provision for her after working. We see that at the very end of, of uh, Proverbs 31, verse 31, it says, Give her the reward of her labor and let her works praise her at the city gates. Again, very similar language to Ruth chapter 3, verse 11, when it talks about the townspeople, if you will, the people at the gate, right, who know the kind of person that she is. So Ruth is approaching Boaz. She makes her intentions clear to him, and he responds with a blessing, speaks of her kindness towards him, as well as her reputation in the city, as one with noble character. So you like the way the story's building? Everything is beautifully coming together, right? The two are finally meeting. They're expressing their intent for one another. And uh, it's almost like we're ready to hear the words they lived happily ever after, right? Well, not quite. There's still verse 12. Yes, it is true that I am a family redeemer, but there is a redeemer closer than I am. Okay, here's a plot twist, right? All of a sudden, there's another person out there somewhere that's a closer relative to Elimelech, who, of course, is the deceased father-in-law of Ruth. Someone else that's closer. And so he would have the priority in being able to serve as the kinsman redeemer. Boaz already knows that. He knows the family relatives, and as soon as she makes this, this statement of, of what she desires from him in terms of a relationship, he says, well, there's someone else. And that, this, again, says a lot about Boaz. He understands the, the, the law of God. He knows that there is a system that's been established and that it's been put there to, to protect and to, to preserve a family and that there is a particular way in which it is to unfold, and he's not going to short-circuit it, even though he's overwhelmed by her kindness, right, and her offer, and he's, he's impressed by her character, but he is a man that understands what the law of God says. He continues in verse 13, stay here tonight, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem you, that's good. Let him redeem you. But if he doesn't want to redeem you, as the Lord lives, I will. Now lie down until morning. Again, we see that, uh, that, uh, that Boaz is, is, is thinking through the, the law of God and the way it's supposed to work. But, you know, you can just imagine that as he, as he lies probably awake the rest of the night, right? Wondering, I'm, I'm going to be going to town in the morning. And I'm going to be looking for my, my relative, and I'm going to be uh, conveying to him that I want to marry a Moabite woman. How is this going to unfold? How is the town going to receive and respond to this news? And I would add there's probably someone else lying awake too. Wouldn't you guess? Ruth's probably mind just filled. All of a sudden, there's another person on the, on the, on the stage here that, that you know, she had already had her mind made up. She thought she saw the provision of God, that she had Boaz there that was going to be her husband. But now she's going to have to wait all night and into the next day to find out how this would be, how this would unfold. I tell you, this, 
This could make a good movie, couldn't it? I mean, just all the drama, the tension, the suspense. Verse 14. So she lay down at his feet until morning, but got up while it was still dark. Then Boaz said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he told Ruth, bring the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she held it out, he shoveled six measures of barley into her shawl, and she went into the town. Now, it doesn't give us the exact measurement there, six shovels of barley. It sounds like a lot, doesn't it? And so, you know, almost like take the shawl, make a backpack out of it, because it even says that, that, uh, that, uh, uh, that, that, that he filled it up and that, uh, that he helped her uh, put that on so that she could, she could take it back. And uh, uh, you, you get the idea that Ruth is going back to Naomi. And speaking of people that probably haven't slept all night, Naomi probably is also lying awake wondering how things are going at the threshing floor, right? Wondering how this is all going to unfold for her daughter-in-law. And as we, as we, uh, as we look at verse 16, it says, she went to her mother-in-law, Naomi, who asked her, what happened to my daughter? Then Ruth told her everything the man had done for her. And as we continue reading towards the end of chapter 3 now, we're going to get a quote from Boaz that wasn't recorded in the interaction between Ruth and Boaz. doesn't mean that he didn't say it. just means that the narrator didn't include it into, into the story until it was communicated to Naomi. So you get what's happening? We're going to get a little new information here about the exchange between Ruth and Boaz. Look at verse 17. He gave me these six measures of barley because he said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Is that interesting? Get a little more information. Why would that be significant? Haven't we seen the word empty or empty-handed already in the book of Ruth? Do you remember when, 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 when Naomi came back from Moab and the townspeople were calling her by her name, which means pleasant, and she said, don't call me that. Call me Mara, which means bitter, for I left here full, but I have come back empty. And then we spent chapter 2 thinking about the provision of God. And now we have a picture of provision again with stated words that we don't want Naomi to feel as if she is empty. The narrator, as God purposed in the book, gives us a picture of Ruth coming back from Boaz. Yes, with grain, but also a promise to redeem and to see that their family is redeemed. The message here is, you are not empty. It's a reminder that when we feel all alone, when we feel as if maybe God has forgotten us, that this may be the very moment that he will show up and, and demonstrate his faithfulness in a way that we might not even imagine. Again, think about what Naomi was feeling at the end of chapter 1, when she said, I've come back and I'm empty. I have nothing. And yet here her daughter-in-law was standing right next to her. Daughter-in-law from Moab. Did she have any idea that her redemption was going to come through this lady? Little does she know the fullness of God 
would be displayed in a way that she could have hardly ever imagined. Well, we get to verse 18, and it's the very last verse in the chapter. Naomi said, my daughter, wait until you find out how things go, for he won't rest unless he resolves this today. So in other words, this this is going to be the day. He's going to take care of things. But the scene comes to a dramatic end. In fact, these will be the last words that we see recorded from Ruth or Naomi as we go into the next chapter. What happens here at the end of chapter 3 is the curtain closes on two women that are waiting. And as I said at the beginning of the message, even under God's providence, sometimes there's a point of activity, which was the beginning of chapter 3, but sometimes we experience a season of waiting. And it doesn't mean that God isn't providing. It just means that it's about his timing. And what we see here at the end of chapter 3 is that it's completely out of their hands. And if we get right down to it, it's really out of Boaz's hands too. But in the end, we are reminded that all of this is in whose hands? Hands of a faithful God. Well, like they used to say in the old television shows, to be continued, right? Do you ever remember that when, when you couldn't stream shows? Do you remember back in the day when you could only watch one show once a week and you, you had to wait to see how it was going to end? To be continued. Come back next week for the exciting conclusion, right? Well, I hope you're tracking with the story of Ruth. Isn't it fascinating to see how God thinks how God continues to unfold things for Ruth and for Naomi, but also for Boaz. I want to remind us again that this this is a historical account. This is a true story that happened. And it's a a small story that 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 is placed within the larger story of the Bible. And the meta narrative, the big story of the Bible is that God has a redeeming love. That he's calling people to himself. That even in seasons of disobedience or unfaithfulness, he is still providing because of his great love and his care for this world. So what can we learn about God's love from the account here in Ruth chapter 3? Let me give you three quick statements before we close. The first one is this. God's love is a love that provides. Because through the characters here of Ruth, we see aspects of God's character. There's bits and pieces that are conveyed that say that's a godly love. And and we know that God is a God who provides. And I was really struck by verse 1. When Naomi tells Ruth, she is, I said it was kind of like the, the question of the chapter. How would she be able to rest How could Naomi know that Ruth would have stability, security, or the verse that was used, how could she have rest? And you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of someone else who offers rest. Jesus speaks in Matthew chapter 11. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Can anyone else offer that? 
Can anyone else offer that kind of security, that kind of provision? You see, the world offers all kinds of false promises of security. Maybe it's through pleasure or through material things, but in the end, these things are always coming up empty. But Jesus, he offers a rest for the soul. One commentator, Ian Campbell, said it this way, the world is littered with broken dreams and broken lives, which remind us that there is no rest outside of Jesus Christ. Jesus offers a security that the world cannot give us and that the world cannot steal from us. In that assurance, there is rest for our souls and security for our lives. Have you experienced that kind of love? Through Christ, a redeeming love that offers provision, including provision in the soul. Secondly, God's love is a love that protects. The whole scene in chapter 3 is about protection. Again, Naomi wants to protect Ruth from the very beginning. Ruth starts speaking up in verse 9, and she says, Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. You see, Ruth is, 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 is not just looking for a husband for herself. She's looking also looking out for Naomi, knowing that, that their family needs provision. Two ladies remain with no children, and there's, there's, there, particularly in that society and in that day, a real need. They are, they are very much dependent upon the help from others. A kinsman redeemer would take care of it, would protect her, the whole family. But what's really interesting is when it says, spread the corner of your garment, the word uh, garment there is the same one that is used back in chapter 2, verse 12. Boaz is speaking to Ruth, and, and he says, May the Lord reward you for what you have done, and may you receive a full reward from the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. And now Naomi's taking similar wording and saying that she is now coming to Boaz under his wing, wanting to be covered by his garment. She's looking again for this type of protection. In Psalm chapter 46, we're reminded that God is a God of protection. Beautiful passage. God is our refuge and strength, a helper who is always found in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not be afraid. Though the earth trembles and the mountains topple into the depths of the seas, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with its turmoil. Just look at the imagery of Psalm 46. It's almost like there's a natural disaster going on, isn't it? Mountains falling into the sea, the waters roaring and surging, and, and it's like all this calamity and turmoil and confusion. And let me ask you this, as David writes these words, do you think he was simply watching a natural disaster unfold? Or do you think he was looking at his life and he was saying, it's as if a disaster is unfolding right here around me. But it's in that, it's in that turmoil 
It's in that confusion, in that state of, of, of despair that he is able to say in verse one, God is a refuge and strength. And maybe for some of us, that's what we need to be reminded of. That in those times that we would not have picked, that we would not have planned, or that we might even say, I didn't deserve, right? It's in those times that God can be a true refuge and strength. It ties right back into what we just read about the security, the rest for one's soul. God is there. Not only does he provide and protect, but God's love is also a love that is patient. And we can, we can see this patience exhibited in chapter 3 in a, in a couple of different ways, at a few different levels, really. The first is that, that there is a waiting in chapter 3. We already talked about that. Ruth has to wait for Boaz. Ruth has to wait while Boaz checks with the next relative. There's a, there's a, a patience here. Naomi and Ruth both have to wait to see what happens, to see whether she'll marry Boaz. But there's another type of patience that is exhibited. And I remind you that this is set in the day of the judges, a day in which everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. And you think about that context of a, of a man and a woman alone overnight, unmarried. And you know that, that the probability would have certainly been there in that day of other things that could have happened, immoral things. But again, true love has patience, waits for the correct time and the, the correct way in which this is to unfold between a man and a woman. So the, the encounter between Ruth and Boaz is a picture of integrity and real commitment being considered, not, not, a, not a cheapness that is so common in our world today, picture of integrity, and it's certainly springing from a love that they have for God. We hear about the noble character and all these other traits, right? So it's not a picture of lust in chapter 3 or a picture of living for the moment, which have, would have certainly been the case for most of the people in the land at that time, but not with these two. And again, I just emphasize that, that this type of godly love exhibits patience, now, if we were to take some time, we could go back to Genesis 19, and we could find two other women who are worried about their family lineage. And you can see what unfolds with Lot's daughters and what unfolds with, with immorality and incest and really the, the beginning of the line of the people of Moab. And what a contrast between those two accounts. And that contrast exists in our day. And people, married or unmarried, young or old, have to decide whether or not they want to follow the character of a Boaz and a Ruth or the people of our day. We know that that's what is more common and what is more accepted. The idea of the temporal live for the moment ways of the world rather than the pursuing of God's patient plan. But one more level of patience to mention. Not just patience and waiting for the right time, but also patience in dealing with others. God is described in Exodus 34, verse 6. Listen to this description. The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. See that? This great God, 
the sovereign Lord, the creator of the, of the universe. He is patient. Though time and time again we, we stumble, we fail, we may not be faithful to him or to his word, and yet he is slow to anger, it says. He's abounding in love and in truth. It speaks of God's patience. Even if we are slow to trust, we're slow to, to understand, God is indeed patient with us. I want to close by sharing a story that some of you have heard before. I shared it a couple of years ago. But it speaks about a group of people who were understanding for the first time God's love. And I started the message by saying there are some people today that may be with us in this service or the next that need more than just a reminder of God's love. They need to receive God's love. And there was a, a missionary with Wycliffe Bible translator, tr translators, and he was in the country of Cameroon in West Africa. And he was trying to communicate to a tribal community in their tribal language the power of God's love. And so he was working through, through, their, uh, through this particular language group. And he was understanding that, that, that verbs would end in one of three vowel sounds. I, A, or you. And depending on what, word, what letter was at the end of the word would, would really uh, bring about the, the, and convey what that verb or that word actually meant. And so uh, he, he took the word love, which had what we would consider two consonants, D and V, like diva. And he said, now, just so that I understand, I'm going to put the, the vowels at the end of this, and, and I want to ask you about this. Could, could, you, could you love with the D-V-I, Diva, your wife? And they said, yes, that would mean that, that the wife had been loved, but that the love was gone. So he thought, well, this must be something like a past tense. I used to love my wife. I loved her, past tense. And then he says, well, could you deva your wife? And they said, yes, that, 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 that would be saying that, that your, your wife's actions are good and that you continue to love her as she takes good care of you. It continues. Okay, that makes sense. Well, could you devu your wife, ending with a U? And before they answered, they broke out in laughter. And they said, no, that, that's not a word in our language. We don't. We don't have that word because that would mean something like a forever love. That would mean that you would continue to love your wife no matter what she did. Even if she stopped showing commitment or faithfulness to you, that you would just keep on loving her. So no, we would never use the word devu. The word just doesn't exist. So the missionary thought about that and sat quietly. Thinking about God's love, he asked them, could God devu people? They thought about it for a minute. There was complete silence until he noticed that some of these elderly tribesmen had tears running down their cheeks. They had never thought about God's love in such a context. They said, do you know what this would mean? This would mean that God keeps loving us over and over even if we were to reject his love. He would be compelled to love us even though we had sinned against him more than other people. 
And the missionary noted that changing one simple vow changed the meaning of the word from I love you based on what you do and who you are to I love you based on who I am. I love you because of me, my character, not yours. That was a turning point, a turning point for that tribe turning point for those people. God, this missionary says, encoded the story of his unconditional love right into their language. And for centuries, the little word was there, unused, but available, and even grammatically correct, even understandable, but not known. As we look at the world around us, God's love is there, but it may not be understood. It's available, It's available to be received. And as I said, maybe there are some today that beyond being reminded of God's love need to receive it in the fullness of Jesus Christ. He is the Redeemer. He is the one that is ultimately the fulfillment of the book of Ruth. This story inside a story is pointing to the fulfillment of redemption. Who is the greatest redeemer? It, of course, is Jesus Christ. Yes, he offers a love that provides and protects. Yes, he is patient. Yes, the God of the universe wants to spread his garment over you and cover you with his wings. Yes, that's the kind of love that he offers you and me through his son, Jesus Christ. The invitation today for you is, have you received it? Have you trusted fully in him? Turning away from the things of this world and what it offers and what it provides and with the assurance of only what God gives in Christ, have you received? It begins by repenting of sin, turning away from the old ways, recognizing the need to be rescued from the penalty that they bring and be given, as Dennis said earlier in the service, given a brand new life. I invite you today. In just a moment after we pray, the encouragement team will be over at the tables. And if you have a question about what it means to follow Christ as Savior, this could be, for some of us here today, a day of salvation, a day of trusting and finding Christ as your Redeemer. So the prayer and encouragement team will make their way to the tables. They're also there if you have a prayer need. There's something taking place in your life that you'd like someone to to pray with you about. Stop by and let them have the privilege of praying for you. The ushers are also going to come and receive the offering this morning. Let's take a minute to bow and pray before they come. Dear God, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that it is true. We thank you that you have chosen to use this little book to convey the great love that you have for this world. Father, we are overwhelmed when we think about your provision, when we think about the way that you you want to protect us and care for us, and to think that it, it cost the life of your one and only son to ultimately give us this type of redemption. We know, Lord, that forgiveness is free, but that for you, it came at a great cost. So Father, we pray now that you will take your words, that you, by your spirit, will apply them. You will give us insight, that you will draw us closer to yourself. 
And Father, if there are any among us in this service or even in the next who have not yet received your great love, the salvation that comes through Christ, Lord, may today be that day of salvation. Father, we ask your blessing on this offering as it is received. Use it to provide for the ministries in this church, in our community, and around this world. We pray this in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and all of God's people said.